Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Move Conversations Presents with Ms. Mukta Naik, fellow at the Center for Policy Research, New Delhi. I'm your host, Venkat. Ms. Mukta is an architect and urban planner. Her research interests include uh, housing and urban poverty, internal migrations, as well as uh, urban transformations in small cities. She's a fellow, as I said, at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. At CPR, she focuses her work on understanding the links between internal migration and urbanization in the Indian context. Mukta has been published widely in the print and in the digital media. She has run a market research and media services company in the past, and uh, she's been working with prominent corporations. Mukta has a master's in urban and regional planning from Texas A&M University, and is currently a PhD candidate uh, at the Institute for Housing and Urban Development Studies in Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Mukta, welcome to the MOVE Conversations. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's our pleasure. And, uh, you know, we have read a lot about uh, your publications, uh, things that you brought up, the issues on COVID-19 and migrant worker issues. So uh, we would like to tap into your expertise. And uh, to begin with, let's set the context. You know, Mukta, many of us are broadly aware of large-scale labor migration within India with people moving from uh, you know, highly populated states in the North, East, and Northeastern India to more industrialized Western and Southern states in India. So to, to begin with, can you give us a more granular picture of this? Sure. So um, I'd just like to back up a bit. I mean, one thing that COVID-19 has shown us is that migration statistics, and this is something that that people who work in migration have been flagging for a long time, but uh, our migration statistics are not in the best shape. However, we do have a census, and the last census in 2011 counted uh, 454 million migrants, which means about 37% of Indians are migrants. So, so migrants is actually a very vast category. It includes people like me who could be moving cities to look for better jobs. So they spread across the economy, uh, you know, doing high skilled, low skilled, all kinds of work. Uh, and, and that's something that in this particular crisis, it is a particular kind of migrant worker who worked in the most precarious, uh, you know, sectors of the economy that really got uh, highlighted in, in a very specific manner. So of this 37%, straight off the bat, 46% of migrants recorded in the census are women and they're migrating for marriage. So mm -hmm. marriage migration is, is a very peculiar feature of, how, of, of India, not just because um, it, well, women move after marriage, but because the census records it with this particular reason attached to it. So, you know, the statistics is very distorted because ha nearly half are marriage migrants. And then also right. half, many are moving for education or to join their family in another location. So of this large number, there's mm -hmm. only certain number that's actually moving for employment so, right. so you know and and then on the other hand similarly not all migration is rural to urban we are a country in which the majority of migrants are moving from rural to rural locations in certain right. so they're agricultural laborers and they are moving to another location to do farm work a lot of the time 
or moving to non-farm work which is happens to be located in rural areas because 50% of uh, of india's industry is located in rural india not in urban india so we are a peculiar country with with you know uh, in the sense that there's a lot of spatial spread of economic activity yes metropolitan is important but they're not everything right that's just very interesting we never realized that the migration stats of india includes uh, you know migrating for education migrating for marriage and so on and so forth uh, so from which stage do these migrants come from i mean broadly the directions i mentioned but then more specifically uh, from which stage do these people come from which stage do they migrate to and are there any uh, skill specific industry specific labor migrations from certain you know states to certain destination states and so on so yeah so um, of all our migrants about 22% are rural urban migrants and uh, of uh, sort of all only 12 of them move interstate so if we are talking about uh, the majority of our migration is actually moving within the district or within the state border Oh, okay. Migration itself requires resources. You need resources to migrate further away, uh, and to survive in a location which has a different language, a different culture. You need social networks there locally. So, of course, uh, 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 India's economic geography is such that the northern and eastern parts of India, um, yes, they that's those are the sending states, so to speak, because they are populous and they are poor, and they don't right. have. Uh, you know a large uh, job creation in in the non farm parts of the economy whereas right. the in the southern states are more industrialized this is partly historical because that's the way the five year plans in the initial years of independence sort of allocated uh, um, uh, the, the resources and and also partly it's because of human development um, that those states have happened to uh, you know push forward and therefore they've reduced their own population increase so when when the demographics means that the natural population increase the fertility rates fall in those states they have to import labor from other parts of the country to fill that gap also right. the, so kerala is a prime example you know kerala even pre independence there were already education reforms and there were already uh, you know uh, so many other reforms which meant that the labor there was too educated to do manual labor so they were right. to be importing labor initially only from tamil nadu and australandra and, and nearby states but now from as far away as bengal and assam so this right. there is this peculiar sort of a, of of a you know distribution of the geographic economic geography in india and mm-hmm. yes uh, particular because the nature of recruitment is through labor contractors and right. these labor contractors are usually recruiting through kinship caste based kinship based networks uh, yes they do emerge over a period of time these migration corridors uh, for example ganjam in western orissa Uh, right. very strong link with surat and migrants okay. male migrants from from ganjam in orissa go to surat to do work in the power looms and the textile sector okay. and then that's that becomes you know a, a point of also political sort of mediation because when there are elections in orissa uh, there are elect, you know look state level politicians actually travel to gujarat to seek votes because these guys are still voting back in 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 orissa a lot of the time so it's oh, so so they travel back to cast their votes or they yes how do they do that 
So this is, I think, a key feature of internal migration in India that that we do need to understand. So whereas you know more prosperous migrants, knowledge migrants, high skilled migrants uh, have the means to change. Uh, I mean, often do change their location of vote once they move to another place and settle right. in after a few years. It's probably linked to their ability to buy property, own property, work the system, fill forms. Right. You know, chase paperwork, etc. Uh, rural urban migrants, especially those who do seasonal and short-term migration, uh, continue to vote in their home states uh, because that's where their vote actually carries uh, more meaning, and and mm -hmm. where a lot of the their family is still back home a lot of the time. So it's one or two or three members from a large uh, rural household who are migrating out to bring in the remittances and the non-farm income, but the family unit still sees itself identifying with their rural source, you know, their home. And that's a very important thing to remember because uh, it, the theorists have looked at it as a livelihood diversification strategy for rural India. Sending oh, it's interesting. Interesting. And then, you know, you know the... Um, um, I was not familiar with the, uh, you know, um, Orissa Surat uh, linkage. Very interesting. And many, uh, many other know. such linkages, you know. Sure. Like so, so when these people move like this, what are their working conditions, living conditions for these migrant workers in destination states? Especially the, let's, let's do the focus more on the uh, uneducated, less educated uh, population. Absolutely. So um, I think, what what COVID nineteen uh, highlighted migrants because when livelihoods stopped, I mean businesses got shuttered and people could not earn uh, earn their living. Uh, migrants started walking home, and, mm -hmm. and that's why they became seen. But there were a lot of poor who were not migrants who were okay. stuck without incomes in cities or in in work uh, employment hubs. So uh, so essentially. Uh, in some ways, I would say that migrants are not the only uh, people who've been excluded. Mm -hmm. Living conditions of migrants are uh, sort of similar to those of slum dwellers and people who live in any kind of an informal settlement where the state has not extended a full range of basic services and mm -hmm. infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. and there's a mix of residents and migrants who live there. The difference is that whereas residents have some social networks, they may have some uh, partial ownership of property, so not full title, but some claims which they can make. They can also make claims politically. Right. Yeah, and they are also so entitled to, to social benefits like the public distribution system through which they access subsidized food. And these right. immigrants who vote in their home states, whose IDs are made in their home states, cannot make claims to those benefits. Right. So there is no portability for them. Right. Uh, uh, so, I mean, India has done a lot, I think, of progress in universalizing some rights, like education and healthcare, at least in theory, are universal. So wherever you may be in the country, uh, you can go and go to a public hospital and they, they cannot refuse you treatment. Similarly, your child can go to a government school. But as we know, public healthcare and public education is, is not always the best uh, in many locations of the country. So. Right. So that's that's really the, the brunt where access to welfare becomes a bit of an issue. Right. Have the destination states, or you, you refer to the business uh, businesses in these destination states, the you know the business people or the industrialists uh, who who have actually benefited from these migrant uh, workers? Have they done anything for these people over the decades? Um. 
So back in the day, fifties, uh, sixties, uh, it was a different time, and I think uh, employers did 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 produce. Also, there was a lot of public sector employment. So mm-hmm. that campuses with employer housing, worker housing. You know, though that was perhaps the vision initially uh, when India was still a socialist uh, and social welfare was still uh, still a priority, a big priority. But I mm-hmm. think with, with the capitalist and the and globalized, the way the world has moved, uh, the, the agendas have shifted, and labor has become an input. Uh, right. So and and really, it's very it, it's not imagined. So even though the legal framework, which was which was built over those sixties and seventies, uh, and and actually came out of a lot of uh, of movement from the below, so a lot of demands from worker movements and unions and collectives, uh, does pin the responsibility of paying wages regularly, meeting the laws, um, housing in the case of construction workers, etc., on employers. Uh, the record of employers has not been uh, very great in this country. So that's really been labor bargaining power also has uh, reduced substance, substantially over the years. So during the lockdown, that's exactly what happened. We right. suddenly people realized that a large number of these workers live on construction sites or in businesses or in factory premises. And uh, uh, when, the sh- when the businesses shut, they were, they were left high and dry uh, without right. any help. Right. You mentioned that, a, you know, an, a, an Indian citizen anywhere, you know, if goes to a government hospital, they cannot refuse uh, services, you know, uh, irrespective of where the person comes from. So related to that is my question, are there any health insurance or other social welfare wage protection scheme that cover these kinds of migrant workers? So those are the kind of rationalizations that are being demanded now. Um, that the government should change regulation to bring everybody into the ambit. And industry is, of course, uh, uh, especially the small and medium industry sector, they find it very difficult to comply with with even the regulations that exist. So Mm -hmm. that's really where we are sort of caught. It's a choice between the devil and the deep sea. (laughs) There was news that, you know, states such as Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Jharkhand expanded the public distribution system coverage for non-ration card holders. So... What about uh, national capital region and other states in the country? Did the so-called rich states do more for the migrant labor? Um, I don't think so. I think the the responses were very specific to certain states. Okay. uh, Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh doing it, uh, interestingly, Mm -hmm. was because they needed to extend PDS to their own returning labor. Many who had actually, whose names had actually got struck off ration lists. Okay. In a way. So they it's a little bit of a situation where sometimes you're neither here nor there. Because right. the you know, the number of entitlements that the states can give sometimes is finite. So if people right. have not claimed for a long time, they may lose their name from the ration card or you know other administrative issues like that. But yes, some destination states, notably uh, I'd like to take the example of Delhi. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which actually uh, created something called an emergency ration coupon, which had an online uh, system. You pretty much only needed your Aadhaar uh, card number, which you needed to enter into that system, online system. And then the system came back to you via SMS with a date and a location where you could go and collect your uh, subsidized rations. 
your free rations actually so um there were delays they needed the support of civil society to help enroll and help migrants navigate this online system uh, but but they did manage to disperse uh, rations to 3.8 million non pds uh, i mean non ration card holders uh, which i think was a phenomenal achievement in addition to running relief emergency relief teams and in addition to running a number of community kitchens that cooked uh, you know served cooked food through the lockdown so there were right. multiple initiatives together that kind of sustained uh, uh, migrant labor and anybody who did not have access to the pds system so that's a notable notable initiative for sure and um, let's see now whether portability does get scaled up the way it is expected to after this uh, crisis okay mukta in the delhi ncr region where there are different states you know over the years were the workers living in the same areas where they were working and you know what did it they mean when they have to you know cross interstate borders if they were not living in the same states because they you know um, there's delhi there's haryana you know uh, and and so on so and western uttar pradesh and so on so so how does it work uh, did they have to cross interstate borders when they went to work or when they went to return home literally like at the end of the day and so on so what did it what was the impact so uh, the delhi ncr is an incredibly interconnected labor market so uh, and uh, of course for poor workers they actually usually live very close to where they work but mm-hmm. uh, peculiarly so delhi has actually had a lot of anti pollution activism over the years which has pushed industry outside or into the border areas of the city so so the industrial areas and the uh, even even because of delhi delhi has um, basically it has the delhi development authority which controls land and has uh, sort of taken a more conservative approach to real estate development and that's why the neighboring states have taken advantage of that and developed industrial areas like noida and uttar pradesh um, mm-hmm. and uh, also commercial office complexes so gurgaon noida ghaziabad was already an industrial city but i think sure. the industrial part of it grew because uh, delhi threw out through its industries out uh right. you know because it wanted to be a a world class very aesthetically pleasing capital city so everything that did not conform to that image was pushed to the edges so now the edges of delhi are these are working class neighborhoods delhi has also mm-hmm. had a lot of reslum resettlement so right. working class people from the center of the city have been pushed into resettlement areas which are again at the edge of the city so for example um uh, gurgaon's uh, uh, udyog vihar which is the state uh, state's industrial development uh, is right at the delhi gurgaon border the delhi haryana border so right. workers come and work in that industrial area live in gurugram but also mm-hmm. live right across the border in informal settlements which are still within walking distance or cycling distance of the at that industrial neighborhood Right. Um, people like me so my office is in delhi i live in gurugram uh, right. also face the same difficulties but we have the privilege of working from home a factory worker does not so mm-hmm. i think that that class and that divide of the kind of work that you would do, if you were doing kind of work that required your physical presence mm-hmm. and if you happen to be divided from your workplace by a state border or even by a district border 
then uh, you were not really able to access uh, employment as easily um, right. so these these kind of border state and district border issues uh, have been an issue in the delhi's ncr and in, in fact any metropolitan region that has district boundaries or state delhi is peculiar in that multiple state boundaries are also coming into play but sure. uh, but other state other uh, metropolitan areas have district boundaries to contend with and since our administrative infrastructure is dis- is 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 arranged district wise uh, right. this becomes an issue so for example in kolkata the routes for for the for the autos for the three wheelers uh, the, they have a, a system of fixed routes has to be reconciled by multiple rtas of various districts in order for that metropolitan city to have a contiguous system of transportation Mm. so these are these are planning issues that we face regularly that got exacerbated and really really highlighted uh, during the lockdown so when the pandemic hit what was the first reaction of the state governments the central government delhi ncr area so so like you know if if uh, west bengal and calcutta can have that kind of a problem i mean like what would be uh, ncr's uh, situation exactly so in west bengal uh, you know uh, a secretary level a, a, a transport secretary at this at 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 the state uh, department can uh, get two districts to reconcile their differences but it becomes very so the air pollution issue has been a key uh, you know highlighter of that in the delhi area who right. you know so you blame crop burning which is happening in punjab and haryana for delhi's pollution and punjab and haryana blame traffic congestion in delhi for the regional pollution and that blame game can go on forever except that you know getting these three four different state governments to talk to each other uh, and and resolve it is not something that has been easy to do hmm. so did they manage to coordinate with uh, these states did they do well or how did it go uh, yeah i mean it, there were hiccups and i think the fear was really that uh, this was a disease in which people were carrying this disease from one place to the other interestingly there's a colleague in our uh, uh, in our institution that does work on dengue so on vector borne diseases and there to we actually see that the dengue bite may have happened at work Uh, right. but but you are recording the disease in, in where you live so you may have a lot of dengue showing up in west delhi but all these people who are commuting from west delhi to somewhere else for work may actually be picking up the disease somewhere else so mobility and disease is a is something we don't understand because we don't track mobility very well and it mm-hmm. brings me to that point of you know the, there's not just the complex the complexity of migration in terms of permanent and short term and seasonal uh, migration but there's also this business of commuting and uh, india has invested phenomenally in road infrastructure especially rural road infrastructure in the last right. 20 odd years so large belts of of um, uh, sort of um, you know industrial belts or uh, economic corridors have come right. up across the country where you could live in your village but be commuting every day for work and this is also seen in southeast asia where bike loans or two wheeler loans then made it really easy for young men and women to zip off somewhere else and do factory work or or, or pick up uh, do vending street vending you see vietnam girls coming in you know ladies coming in on their little bikes with all their wares piled up to the city to sell their goods through the day and then go back to their rural homes at the end of the day true true so we true. also have to factor this new kind of mobility in and 
from a disease perspective, that's really important. Uh, we don't have right now the data systems to track mobility at all. Right. So in a, in a, a lockdown situation where mobility gets impacted, uh, you know, I want to ask about uh, relief supplies. So we know people collected donations for relief supplies and so on. Could these supplies actually move across borders where the workers lived actually? What about medical relief? Did, did the states allow these things to move across the borders or, you know, how did it go? So the district actually was the unit of governance. Um, right. You might be aware, just to give a legal uh, backdrop to this, the lockdown was implemented under something called the National Disaster Management Act. And this mm -hmm. act actually gives the center uh, a lot of powers to supersede state uh, regulation, legislation, and even its own legislation in the case of an emergency. Sure. And the Disaster Management Act uh, uh, appoints the district collector as mm -hmm. sort of the head of this disaster management district level uh, authority. Um, the other act that was in operation was a much older colonial era national uh, uh, an epidemics act. And every state has this, this epidemics act. So what is whatever has happened to deal with COVID has happened under the ambit of these two legislations, both of which greatly empower the district level. So the district becomes like a contained zone inside which all these decisions have to be taken. And there's also a tacit competition between districts to keep these numbers low. Of <laughs> course, has other issues of reporting errors and you know information management and all of that stuff. But leaving that aside, um, the district had to figure out the medical capacities within their own borders. Uh, and if they just did not have it, then they would have to say, can we use X Y Z capacities in an adjacent district? But um, but but. You know they had to negotiate this um so uh, the relief work also i think um as opposed to other disaster situations we've had the tsunami and the earthquake and various floods where you have these national level ngos that sort of collect or uh, state relief funds that collect money and then you know uh, supplies swoop in from elsewhere aid swoops in from elsewhere and that was really not what could happen during the lockdown so uh, from my perspective it actually brought out a lot of local mobilization for relief and this is what at least I saw in Gurugram where I live. Uh, a, a lot of NGOs, civil society organizations, even resident welfare associations, individuals who wanted to help, uh, you know, were got into this business or got into this action of, of, of giving, right. uh, which I would not have otherwise done with some other kind of disaster because they could have just sent a check to somebody and somebody right. might have organized it. But here you didn't have like these large aid agencies being able to navigate the lockdown. Yeah, so you true. have local and, you know, the political economy works in a particular way. So the, the, uh, I was working with a small group of people and our volunteers were out there delivering relief without curfew passes for the first mm. couple of weeks. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, we had applied for these curfew passes and we had told the district collector's office that we're doing this relief. But the bureaucratic system, it's not so easy for them to react really fast because if they start issuing these indiscriminately, then a lot of people would misuse that. Uh, and right. so there's a tacit understanding that you put a white 
a printout on your car saying for relief duty or some such and the police would just wave you on and not stop you during the lockdown <laughs> they would of course check that you're carrying relief supplies or they would have a conversation with you to ascertain that you are truly well, legitimate true in India a lot of stuff works with these kind of tacit understandings and workarounds and I, but I think that it was phenomenal that a lot of people stepped forward to help in whatever way possible including actually physically moving around the city to deliver rations to areas uh, which frankly the, up, the, the rich considered as dens of disease because that's how we perceive uh, poorer parts of the city uh, and, and COVID was an exception because the disease actually came from the rich who were flying <laughs> the country as soon as it started spreading the poor became the villains of the peace and to find volunteers who were ready to go into slum areas and industrial areas and distribute relief became uh, became a bit of a challenge but people were still doing it so this was a very localized effort and then as the lockdown opened up the usual uh, uh, you know forms of relief and the movement of supplies uh, started getting uh, back to normal right so <clears throat> moving on uh, you know, along the timeline, when the lockdowns were lifted, uh, what were the workers' preferences? Did they want to stay, return home? You know, well, what was the, and how was the return? If you know, we all we all saw the lines and queues. So, you know, how was the process handled? Because we saw heartbreaking scenes. So, what did you see at the ground zero where you were? So, so frankly, uh, people from my organization or friends of mine were very much at ground zero. Uh, I have, I live with elderly people, so I chose to not actually move out much during uh, those first initial uh, weeks. Uh, however, um, so I'll talk about both processes. Uh, uh, so the, the government actually... Uh, the reason why there was so much who you uh, and cry about it is because the government actually uh, stepped in and said you can't move initially. So there was this feeling that you know we're being we're being forced to stay here without the uh, safety nets that we need or without the survival mechanisms. And then there was so much pressure from the source states who said right. that listen our voters and our people to so Bihar is like basically calling all of the states destination states saying how can you do this they were also sending cash transfers to Biharis who were stuck outside stranded workers they had special schemes to send these cash transfers so they were transferring them into the Jandhan accounts and then people right. would draw them wherever they were and things like that um, and then the center of course started organizing these trains to send them back um, and states um, had various mechanisms to identify, uh, make lists, and then transport these workers to these trains. Uh, mm -hmm. My own sense is that this varied a lot across the country. Uh, the police were a frontline agency that were involved in all of this because it was really seen as a law and order issue. How do we right. transport a number of people from place A to place B in a situation where we are supposed to ensure social distancing? We don't want driving, we don't want crowding, we don't want jostling. Um, so um, my own friends who volunteered uh, with the district administration at this time uh, uh, noted that there was an absence of the human touch. 
or mm-hmm. by the authorities of the state um, i understand they were very pressurized to do disease management so in a nutshell i think for for, for the state the tension between managing the disease and managing people and livelihoods and their survival uh, issues this tension became really hard to handle because the mandate that they had was manage the disease right so talking of the tension uh, you know we've highlighted it pretty well so who are the heroes and the heroines in these episodes the volunteers civil societies panchayats taluk officials what what's your take so i mean i think everybody did their best uh, uh, but it took a little time uh, for the extent of the 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 desperation and the hunger to really hit home mm-hmm. uh, within the government system i i, I mean it, it's shocking to me but uh, if if india is 90% informally employed this should have been anticipated and this is right. something that now all commentators are saying but it was not there was some daring hurry to implement a lockdown without providing for the majority of your people um, right. so but, but then once that that imperative became clear and managing the the narrative became important uh, state governments local governments did the best uh, and and uh, i would say here the gram panchayats which are more empowered than city governments in the indian system and are also i guess units that are easier to manage in terms of scale uh, did a lot at their own level uh, mm-hmm. but often uh, reported getting confusing messages from the taluk or the district level so i think it mm-hmm. took a little while for these systems to fall in place some states did better than others um orissa for instance had very early when it started receiving migrants back from the middle east and from um, you know foreign locations when the first set of uh, flights were actually operated to get workers who were stranded outside of india but right. they had already started talking about empowering uh, village panchayats to do quarantining and screening and you know various things so they had provided earmarked funds uh, and almost elevated uh, the the pradhan to like a mini district collector for mm. the period of the of so good, good foresight good planning yeah because uh, they, they it's a state that is very sensitive to migrant issues because uh, you know remittances is a big part of their economy etc and they've had a track record in uh, being attentive to migrants uh, that they send away in particular that's um, true yeah yeah but but overall i think this uh, the heroes um it's different in different state definitely civil society did a lot and stepped forward there is no no doubt about that i would say that the police uh yes there were there were a lot of media stories about police violence and etc etc but on a day to day level i think for the police to be out there on the front line uh, ensuring that people who don't understand why this is being done followed uh, a lockdown it wasn't a very pleasant job to do Right. i would say that the beat constables and the beat police people are actually quite embedded inside communities on the ground because uh, they really know what's going on they track crime True. on a day to day basis so so those um, we we really need to look for heroes in unlikely places and and not vilify uh, vilify the state and you know sort of pedestalize civil society that is not as simple as that thanks um, that's that's interesting to hear yeah so the moving forward uh, uh you know we moved to the segment where we you know what we should learn what we should do one of the first things we heard was that the proposal to establish the migration commission 
how do you think this will play out what should be done so the migration commission uh, is an idea that the prime minister spoke about in his program man ki baat Mm-hmm. perhaps inspired by uh, up chief minister yogi adityanath's announcement on right. it's not very clear what they are thinking of uh, right. right now um um but uh, definitely there are um, issues it's you know india is a federal country uh, there are uh, the there are sub- subjects that the center has jurisdiction over but very critical subjects like law education are governed by states right. uh, so yeah so states and center negotiate a number of things often st- uh, the center for instance may issue a housing policy but it's up to the states to uh, to take uh, take that up in in whatever way it suits them uh, and contextualize it to their that situation so so the center state relationship in the uh, in the context of migration is is really critical because constitutionally we have freedom of movement if you are a resident of, of india you can move anywhere else in the country for work and uh, you cannot be discriminated for anything even for employment yet domicile requirements for employment are rampant in this country and so states use language often as a work around to implement right. these kind of domicile uh, so, so essentially i think the key point to understand is that there is a political economy to migration which i've mentioned before also right. where uh, states would like to uh, give preference to their own voters for work for jobs for housing for for all of this gamut of social services that is required but on the other hand there is a package of rights and entitlements that every citizen in the country must be able to access and which would also in the long run make for a more productive uh, 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 workforce So reconciling these, I think, is in the interests of states, center, local governments, industry, all of it. But it's a difficult conversation uh, at this point. The second point I'd like to bring, where I think there is a little bit more hope, is uh, state-to-state bilateral relations. So right. if I have, for instance, uh, the the Ganjam and Surat example, uh, Orissa and Gujarat have conversations and resolve some of these issues bilaterally. Mm-hmm. And in the past, Orissa had actually a memorandum of understanding with the erstwhile Andhra Pradesh, mm-hmm. where a lot of uh, Orissa workers from the tribal parts of Orissa would go to work in brick kilns mm-hmm. in Andhra Pradesh, and there they were really bad working and living conditions, and also the loss of education for their children who would mm-hmm. move from Odia speaking areas. to telugu speaking yes to telugu speaking areas and the mou actually achieved uh, things like local language instruction being started in 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 the destination areas because they were moving for 6 to 8 months a year so it was mm-hmm. constantly a disruption so these kind of experiments have happened in the past but to institutionalize a mechanism for bilateral negotiation uh do we need the center to step in and help in some way or can states do this entirely on their own these are questions that need to be debated and discussed so just like the gst council spent months and months and years and years to sort of i mean come to, to craft an agreement on the goods and services tax uh, i yeah. imagine the migration commission as doing something like that where you bring representatives from the states on the table and you figure out the the corridors the migration corridors and really start you know 
uh, finding institutional uh, governance mechanisms to resolve some of these problems. Right. One of the subsets of this, if I can call that, would be the governance of metros, the large metros itself, um, because there's large influx of uh, migrants. So. You know, and then they are key economic contributors. Uh, these uh, megalopolis have grown because of for the, uh, you know for what they have done. So, in the context of their employment, public distribution system, health, safety, etc., that you talked about earlier, and you know now that we are wiser after the COVID nineteen, uh, what should be the you know couple of governance points that you would recommend uh, from a large metro's perspective? So before I come to that, uh, I, I'd like to sort of highlight where we stand now. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the images of migrants we saw were uh, April and May. Mm -hmm. We're now in August. Right. Uh, and we have, uh, I think I'd say somewhere between five and six million uh, migrants who have gone home. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to extrapolate from government figures here. Um, Non-government uh, entities have estimated much higher numbers, but let's stick with the conservative ones. So right. these are workers who've gone home. And now uh, what do we do? Will they come back once the economy picks up? Will they be scared of coming back given that there is likely to be a resurgence of the disease in many areas? Uh, given that uh, rural urban guarantees are being bolstered by states to, to, to sort of, um, I guess, reassure workers that they will not go hungry uh, yeah. uh, in their home states. So, so, so that's really where we are right now. And cities, I think, are aware that attracting labor back um, is, is, is going to be hard task. Labor is already coming back. It's already coming back to industrial areas, Delhi, Gujarat, all of the areas are seeing, um, uh, see, especially domestic industries which are serving local demands uh, mm -hmm. are seeing resurgence. Uh, industries that are plugged into the global value chain, there the resurgence is slower because international trade, etc. is in the sure. ports are not operating at full capacity. So there's a whole sort of a downward linkage um, uh, situation there. There's also the question of the dilution of labor laws, <laughs> which, which, which is on the table. A lot of states have actually sought to dilute labor laws, extend working hours, etc., in order to be able to uh, work uh, work these factories at lower costs because right. because industry is stretched. So there's a number of those issues on the table. But uh, but but like everything uh, in, in 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 that we've learned at this time, the the problems with metros is pre-existing. So there's a governance problem with, with cities because city governments are not empowered in the Indian mm -hmm. context. So right. in, in India's federal uh, governance situation, the states, a lot of the power concentrates at the state level. The devolution in rural India from state to gram panchayat has, has, has been a little bit more successful, but the devolution from state to urban local body has not happened. Um, right. uh, perhaps because uh, the economic concentration is so much in cities that states would like to control revenues okay. uh, from these uh, locations. So, so right. there is a bit of tension there. Also that local governments in, in cities uh, are not mandated to do economic development. So they are asked to do um, to to basically uh, provide services and utilities. Uh, they are asked to uh, even the land development and land uh, planning functions in most cities are done by development authorities, which 
is a parastatal body and not answerable to the elected government of the city. Right. So, so the urban governance is a very sticky issue in India and uh, there does not seem to be experts will tell you that local elected governments is the best way forward but uh, at at present, we are in a gridlock because, uh, you know, do you devolve powers first or do you capac uh, improve, increase capacity? And so we're in that we're in that bind where somebody yeah. like me, who is an urbanist, would say, give them the powers, they'll figure out the capacities. Once they have the power, it will take a few years, but they'll figure out the capacities. But somebody in the government would say, I can't take that risk. This is where my economic development is concentrated. And I need to first make sure that there are capacities before I devolve the power. And the second part, of course, like everywhere else in the world, local governments are the most corrupt. There's all, I mean, that's... Yeah, that's let's, let's, let's face it. Yeah. But 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 when democracy is functional, that corruption uh, is 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 mediated by some sort of demands for accountability and transparency. Right. But we haven't got that far to really push that and experiment. I think it's 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 new. It's uncharted waters uh, in the Indian context. We're being very conservative by keeping our cities uh, sort of under the control of the state. Uh, this is also stemming from. Uh, a situation where urbanization is seen as a pathway to economic growth, but urbanization per se is not embraced by the political spectrum, mm -hmm. which sees its, its power continuing to be derived from rural voters. True, true. So this, I think it's shifting. This landscape is shifting. Urban voters have been very instrumental in putting the BJP to power for sure. So right. this is shifting and this will, uh, this will keep, uh, hopefully it will move into a narrative where democracy will become uh, more of a conversation. But as of now, this is where we are and migrants cannot be helped unless the center or, uh, I mean, unless there's a legal, uh, uh, there's a push to, to ensure that there is a basic set of entitlements that everybody can get. And unless local governments are given the resources to make that possible. So this right. conversation about, you know, what that's happened, what COVID has essentially done is highlighted that the worker is important and that the worker has made an economic contribution. And in, in global migration, this is a very well-known debate where uh, international migrants are vilified on one side, culturally, border, all sorts of border restrictions are put in place to ensure that they remain second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. But then the other side is that the economic contribution of immigrants is always held up as that justification factor uh, for pushing for inclusion uh, you know, and, and, and non-discrimination. So we're sort of in a similar situation here where we have to now start framing these economic arguments, which is sad because uh, uh, do you frame this argument as an economic argument or as a rights and entitlements argument? Right. Right. So, so, so we need to have more conversations on this or in move conversations. So thanks, Mutta, for a very comprehensive and insightful session on Indian migrant labor issues. You gave us some very useful numbers to begin with to understand the socioeconomic and demographic context. Some granular details we weren't aware of. And you know how we should understand this and the highlighted weaknesses in the whole ecosystem that impacts the poorest of the migrants and then how this plays out across various states. And of course, we all know that COVID-19 laid bare many of those issues and, and, and you know, threw spotlight on them. Uh, finally, you shared with us some of the policy recommendations that you have as an urban planner. And 
and I'm someone very deeply uh, involved in these uh, issues from uh, you know from a migration perspective, and that should be you know implemented based on what we have learned from the recent experience. We are indeed very very uh, grateful. Viewers, uh, we hope that you enjoyed this edition of Move Conversation with Mukta Nayak as much as we did. Uh, if you want to watch uh, more such in insightful conversations, please do subscribe to Move Conversations on the YouTube channel. Uh, we plan to bring in more such episodes in the weeks to come. Thank you very much. This is your host, Venkat, signing off.